Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. Today we begin a new series. Thank you for giving good support to Jeremy. I'm so grateful for him preaching the last few weeks. We had a couple of weeks of, of kind of vacation. I don't think my wife feels like it was vacation because getting your daughter off to college is a ton of work, but she's settling well. Our son is there too. He's settling well, and now we're back and getting ready to go again. We start a new series today called Outside Influence, and there's a key question that kind of centers this whole series and that, that's this. In a polarized world, in a polarized world where there's insider and outsider kind of things full of moral dilemmas and conflict and divisions, how do we live fully engaged in this world in relationship and friendship as faithful followers of Jesus? I think the church over the years has struggled greatly with the answer to that question and not always responded well. And I think for some of you, that lack of good response by the church may have caused you to leave church or question church at times because of that response. Our approach to this topic for the series is we're going to look primarily at the book of Daniel. And, uh, and, and, it's, and for many of you, Daniel is this, if you grew up in church, is this adventure story. The story that you saw on the flannel graphs, which all of you remember was the predecessor to video and video games uh, for interactive stuff, where you saw stories like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fiery furnace and God rescuing them out of that. And they were thrown in because they were faithful to God in the face of opposition. Or, or you remember Daniel and the lion's den, which was actually the favorite flannel graph lesson, although it led to lots of conflict, right? Because everybody argued over who could put the cuddly little lions on the flannel graph. And the story there is is Daniel refusing to bow to a false god and being thrown in the lion's den and God rescuing him and the circle of justice is made complete by the people who were evil and forced him to be there being thrown in. And we get those stories and we grow up with this idea that is there's certainly some truth in, in the bravery and the courage of faith that those stories give us as children. But they also easily communicate to us a false message. And that false message sometimes goes like this. If we do everything right, especially in our faith in regard to the hardest of challenges in in life, then God won't let anything bad happen to us and he will always give us more influence and promote us and bless us and rescue us. And the reality of life is, when we look at Hebrews 11, when we look at the lives lives of the apostles, is that not all of them were rescued from difficult times. In fact, many of them were martyred. And the story of courageous faith that we learn as children is not this quid pro quo thing where we do this and God does that. Ever since sin entered the world, from page 4 on in the Bible we see that bad things have happened to good people who are pursuing faith in God. And yet God shows up in the midst of those circumstances and His presence and His power and His purpose become a reality. And sometimes we're rescued and sometimes we have to endure them and go through those things. For others, uh, they look at Daniel and they see it primarily as a prophetic book. 
And they see the adventure, but they see it primarily as a prophetic book, and it is. In the Bible, it's actually listed as one of the minor prophets. Now, that's not like major leagues and minor leagues. It's just minor league, minor prophet is, is just a shorter prophetic book. It's not less important in the Bible. And, and the last six chapters in particular of Daniel study a lot. If we study them, it gives us great confidence in, in, in God and his word and in the inspiration and the reliability of the word because he goes through in great detail predicting the next four major empires, the rise and the fall of the Persian Empire, the rise and the fall of Alexander the Great in amazing detail of what actually happened in the years to come, the rise and the fall of the Roman Empire, the coming of Jesus, even the sacking of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. are all predicted far ahead of time by Daniel. And we can look at that and we can go, wow, the confidence we can have in God's ability to communicate reliably to us through the Bible. It gives us tremendous confidence. We're going to deal with that particular issue. It also talks about the end times of the yet to come, of Jesus' return and setting everything right. So it also predicts future events that have yet to unfold. But we're going to talk about that in the last message. Today we're going to spend, in the next few weeks, we're going to spend primarily our time on this interesting study that really applies so well to our day. It applies so well because Daniel gives us this vivid picture of what it's like to live as a follower of Jesus in a world that is polar opposite from you, that is polarized in its all as views, that has opposing views of morality, opposing views of sexuality, opposing views and weird views of socioeconomic, cultural, and religious things going on. In our world today, we face that, don't we? In our politics the reason we can't get anything done in Washington and all sorts of areas of our world are polarized. Against that backdrop, Daniel shows us that we live in a time as followers of Christ of huge opportunity for the gospel. And, and he teaches us how we can be people who live with different values and different faith than those around us, and yet we can live fully engaged in relationship with people who think so different than us, fully engaged in this world in a winsome way that brings tremendous positive influence. Let's jump in right now to the foundational lesson, which, which starts very early. The back down to Daniel is this. Daniel is born in Jerusalem in a very tumultuous time. It's a time of history where the Israelites have been in rebellion against God and huge moral decay has been going on for several centuries. And God's tried to bring them back many times through this time. But the prophets foretell, because of this continued disobedience, that the Jerusalem will be sacked. They'll be taken into captivity. And we see Daniel living through that in the, in the years 587 and 586 B.C. He lives through this terrible time of famine and death and the siege of Jerusalem. And he's about 14 or 15 years old at the time, maybe, maybe as young as 12 or 13. And, uh, and he's born, we know this from the history, we know he's born into some sort of ruling family. Let's look at Daniel 1 and read the text. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim and the king of Judah into his hand, along with some articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing absolutely 
aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them the new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, to Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And what we're really talking about today is the power of culture. Culture is a powerful thing, isn't it? It shapes our likes, it shapes our dislikes, it shapes how we dress, it shapes what we want to do for entertainment, it shapes the way we relate to each other, it shapes our core philosophy, our values, how we arrive at truth, it affects us in every way. And we all grow up in culture not knowing really anything different and having difficulty of seeing anything from a different perspective because it's all we know. Even if we rub shoulders with people who are near us, who have grown up in a different subset of culture, we still often interpret life through our own grid, through our own lens, and we don't really understand how they see the world. I grew up in uh, southern Minnesota in a very homogeneous cultural area. It was all northern European white farmers who were very set in their ways, hardworking, just good salt-of-the-earth people. One thing I loved growing up and still love is, is vacations, being able to visit other places. And one thing I loved about the 11 years I spent consulting with churches and doing a lot of traveling is I loved hearing other people's stories, to hear how they viewed the world. It was, this was particularly uh, good for me living in Eugene that was so diverse, both ethnically, socioeconomically, culturally, and as politically diverse as of a place as you can find, I think, in America. And it was just such a great experience. I loved having conversations. And I had actually about a year ago a really fun conversation at an event I was at here in town with with a, an African-American woman who, before living here, had lived in Cleveland. And she had lived in an exclusively black neighborhood in Cleveland. And, and both of us got talking about how when we first moved to New Albany, we felt like there was this lack of diversity. Now, the longer I live in New Albany, the, the more I realize the diversity is a whole lot more than first impressions, right? But for both of us, with our background, it was less diverse than where we had come from. And and uh, she was uh, she was going on and talking about her life and some of the differences, and she went on to qualify that while she lived in Cleveland in this almost exclusively African-American neighborhood, she was a part of a larger school district that was not very diverse. And then I said, well, what was it like? And she went on to describe uh, it was about 35% Hispanic, and it was about 10% Asian, and a smattering of other ethnicities and cultural groups, and about 10% African-American. So the majority of the people in this school were actually from ethnic or cultural minority groups. For me, growing up in a homogeneous setting in Minnesota, that's like really diverse. But isn't it interesting? She looked at that and said it's not diverse because of the pain of some of her cultural bias experiences she had, because of the culture she grew up in, the perception she had of that place was it was not diverse because her minority was still, her minority group was still too small in the thing. Isn't that interesting? And, 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 and it's, it's true for all of us. All of us have these kinds of grids. 
in our life. We have painful experiences. We have cultural things that predict how we're going to look at things beyond ethnic things or beyond even as divisive as that can still be. We have moral questions that we answer differently because of our culture. We have religious questions. We have political views. We have ideas of how we should best help the poor We have that are different because of our cultural background. We relate to each other different in conflict because of our background. Our subsets of our culture in which we live have conformed us, creating an identity who we identify with in terms of values, beliefs, recreation, language, dress, everything. Our culture creates so much of our identity and works to create conformity to that identity. That's just a natural thing that culture does. And in Daniel, we see this tension in vivid relief. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Ezra are followers of Jesus put into a cultural background uh, where that is very different and into a re-education program to become a different culture. They were selected because of their learning ability, their aptitude to learn. And Daniel is the oldest of the bunch at the most 15 years old. And the Babylonians, it says in verse 4, want to change his language. They want him to speak like they speak. They want to change, it says, his literature and his philosophy. They want him to think like they think, to reinterpret life and history and faith through the Babylonian grid of of thinking. In fact, they even forced them, contrary to their religious beliefs, to study the magic arts. In verse 5, we see them trying to force them to eat like they eat. And this is not just, you know, them trying to get them away from a kosher diet. This is, this is a much bigger issue for Daniel and his, and his friends than, than that. The king's food that they were supposed to eat was typically offered as sacrifices to the Babylonian gods. And so this was part of their worship of idolatry was the king's food. And they were forced to have to face that idea that they wanted them to now worship like they worshiped as well. And in verse 6, we see the fact that he gave them new names. They had to abandon their identity and take on a new identity. See, names back then in ancient times meant a lot more to who we are and our identity than they often mean today. Daniel meant that God is my judge, I will, or, or it could also be translated, I will answer to God alone, to Yahweh alone. Hananiah meant Yahweh has been gracious to me. Mishael meant who is like God in this worshipful, awesome sense of looking at God as so amazing. Azariah meant Yahweh has helped me. And the names that they gave them instead basically said, you now serve various different Babylonian gods. So every time they heard their names, they were reminded of their new identity and the rejection of their old. And it was also this flaunting of the defeat of their God by Nebuchadnezzar in their face. And beyond that, they were also stripped of their manhood. They were made made eunuchs, which means basically they could never father a child and they would never be married in their life. Everything was changed for them. They were supposed to become something else. And all cultures are like that. Our cultures in Columbus are like that. They push us to conform. And it's so easy for us to live these syncretistic lives where we kind of follow God But really, our master, our real master, is culture around us. 
And Daniel and his friends are put into this place where they have this full court press going on against them to brainwash them, to force these teens to identify with a new culture and abandon those. Over the coming weeks, we're going to look at more at this, uh, how God called them as teens to be strong, to lead in a highly antagonistic culture, influenced, and, and, and in a culture where they ended up influencing tremendously for the good, for God, and accomplished great good. But think about this. They were teenagers. They were teenagers. Middle school age, not even old enough to drive. And they were put in this kind of an environment. And Daniel's invitation to all of us in this part of the story is for us all, ourselves and our teens, to see ourselves differently. Teens, if you're here, God has called you to be culture influences, to not go along, to get along, to not do stuff, to, 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 to avoid standing out, to, to not do anything that's embarrassing, which is what usually drives us in front of our peer groups, to, and not to even be kids that have to be fear, fearful of culture so that we need to protect ourselves and keep distance from it. That's not what he's calling us. So parents, this, this whole invitation begs the question of us. How do we raise strong kids who will be leaders, influencers, fully engaged in the culture around us through winsome relationships as followers of Jesus, not fearful, not having to bunker from it? And Daniel challenges for all of us the low bar we set oftentimes for our children for how strong they can and we should call them to be in their sense of identity in God to lead and make a difference even as early as middle school. You know, is our first reaction as parents to protect our kids when kids are having bad influence on them around us and, and to distance ourselves from those peer relationships? Or is our first reaction to coach them and challenge them to persevere and be engaged in those relationships and make a difference? That's kind of what Daniel's telling us to do and inviting us to do. The ending phrase of our text says this, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with royal food or wine. Now, can you imagine that choice that he had to make? Not to participate in the meals that everybody else was participating in because he didn't want to be a part of the Babylonian idolatry. That meant every breakfast, every lunch, every dinner, these guys stood out from the rest. Quietly, politely we'll see, outside of culture while living winsomely in those relationships. And this highlights a truth for all of us that we have to wrestle with. The only way we can make a difference in life as if we are different, as if we're willing to stand out. And Daniel and his friends' actions also tie into our last series where we talked about some habits and some margin in our life and, and, and gives us a helpful question. It says, when culture presses us, what are the rituals or habits that you have in your life to ground you in your faith and your obedience to God? You see, every meal... They were able to sit and remember God's names for them, the distinctives of their faith. They were tangibly reminded in simple ways of God's call on them to live a different moral life and, have, and live life by a different religious compass. And they chose a simple way to remind themselves within their life. I mean, they couldn't control. They couldn't control what people called them. They couldn't control what they studied. They couldn't even control their schedule. But three times a day, they were reminded 
of their true identity and where their true identity came from, their God, not the gods of the Babylonians. Now, let's think further about this, too. I imagine sitting there at those lunches and dinners, the food looked really good. I mean, these are the best chefs in Babylon, the best food available, the best prepared food. I'm sure it looked great, smelled great, created a lot of desire to eat it. You know, in our American culture, we, we kind of have these hedonistic cultural values that are preeminent where personal pleasure and self-expression are these high values that we have. And we easily fall prey to the ideas of our culture that if we desire something, those desires are meant to be fulfilled. If we consistently have certain desires, then those desires must speak to our identity and who we are. In fact, culture says it is our right to live according to our desires and our needs and our, and our drives, doesn't it? And yet it's interesting. We actually disagree with that statement even when we agree with our culture. We actually disagree pretty strongly in some areas because we know part of developing uh, strength in our faith and strength in our emotions and strength in our thoughts and strength in our character is the foregoing of our desires for a greater good. I mean, isn't the definition of character? Character by nature is the development of the ability to forego desires and drives in order to live and do what is right, good, and best for others and ourselves. I mean, we forgo our desire to lash out when we're, when we're hurt, right? Because we want to choose to communicate kindly. We, when we're married, we forgo expressing sexual desires for people who we are not married to because we believe that love and faithfulness and kindness causes us to choose faithfulness, right? We, we forgo the desire to be deceptive and instead choose to tell the truth even when it hurts us, even when it embarrasses us, even when we've done something wrong. Why? Because we believe that honesty and trust in relationships are more important than protecting ourselves from the embarrassment of having done something wrong, Right? We don't eat that extra dessert. We don't eat the extra fries. We don't eat the extra nachos, even though we strongly desire them because we believe that God created us to be healthy, not just to fulfill our desires. See, desires our culture so often tells us define our identity. But we know that's not right. And we know that's not even healthy. And Daniel and his friends are reminded three times a day through this spiritual habit of changing the way they're eating for their purposes, that often deferring our desires in so many levels for the greater good is the best way to live and God's way to live. So what are the spiritual convictions? What are the habits that you have in your life that regularly remind you who you serve, to remind you who defines your identity, to remind you to ground you in living purposefully and good rather than driven by simple desire fulfillment? See, culture seeks to shape our identity it tries to shape our sexual identity, our political identity. We're supposed to believe certain things about who we are. If we're, if we're pretty or not so pretty, we're supposed to believe certain things. If we are athletic or not so athletic, or we're supposed to believe stuff about ourselves. If we're book smart or not so book smart, or if we're white collar or blue collar, we're supposed to believe stuff about ourselves. If we're wealthy or not, we believe things about ourselves and it becomes part of our identity. If we love equestrian stuff or we love NASCAR, it speaks to our identity, right? 
If we're a Buckeye fan or a Wolverine fan, it speaks to our identity, right? The power of culture is tremendous to make us conform. I mean, look at me. It only took one Buckeye game against a hated rival, the USC guys, to be with 106,000 fans to change me from a Duck fan to an Ux fan. Right? Just don't clap too loud. I haven't sold out yet. D still comes before B in the alphabet for me. Okay? That's just the way it's going to be. But, but hey, it changes you. I mean, seriously. Unless we understand the strength of the culture we live in to shape our identity, we will become what our culture wants us to become instead of what God wants us to become and has called us to become. You see, the foundation of our identity is God and who created us to be, who he created us to be, not our identity. And our ability to stand confidently as followers of Jesus in a polarized world, in an antagonistic world, and yet be fully engaged in winsome friendship and relationship with people who disagree with us starts by us settling this issue of where our identity comes from, who is the source of our identity, that it's not others It's not our desires. It's not even what we think about ourselves. But God's the one who defines who we are. And Daniel lived showing us how having that kind of strength can make us such powerfully winsome people in this egomaniac-driven, unpredictable, hostile, difficult relationship environment that is far more difficult than almost anything any of us ever have or ever will face. We can learn much. But the question is, how do we know if our identity is settled in God or not? I mean, that, that's the answer to that question. It, it's, it's going to be an ongoing process. This is not one of those things where we settle our identity and we forever settle. This is a constant monitoring thing. But let me give you just a couple thoughts of, of ways you might detect whether your identity is not settled in God. See, it comes from monitoring this constant battle in us and being aware of the battle of culture around us to conform us. And if that battle in us comes out in anger, angry, intense conflict where we feel the need to prove we're right, where we feel the need to prove that we have the moral high ground, then I'm going to suggest to you that, tr- that culture may be trumping God as the source of your identity because the opposing views threaten your identity. And it means your identity is not settled in God. You fear being wrong. You need to be right. You need to win. You need to have power. You need to validate yourselves. You need to be right. And too often that validating for us becomes not just disagreeing, but we can get caught up in needing to demean even others who disagree with us. Even if we only do it in private, if we don't do it in public, we just think awful of other people or we make them out to be evil only. Now, I'm fascinated by presidential politics, and I also get really quickly tired of it, uh, is that I think most of you probably can relate to that, right? Now, I don't endorse publicly candidates or anything, but I do want to say this. I would rather vote for someone with a strong, settled, clear identity than someone who doesn't. And I'm not referring to a strong, settled identity as being equated to a clear platform and clear talking points. I'm talking about them personally, as a person, as a leader. If their ideas, if their identity is really well established, it gives them the ability to stay above the fray and to work with people of opposing positions because they're not threatened by them, right? 
And they're also more trustworthy to actually stick with what they say they're going to do because they're not being swayed so much by the need for power or by the opinion of other people. I've watched dozens of interviews of all the presidential candidates on both sides, and I've got to tell you, I've only seen a couple of them who can be in there and talk about their disagreement without having to make the other person or other party evil and demean them in that process. Back to you and me. How do you do that? When you disagree with stuff, do you post Facebook things or have conversations where where so-and-so with whom you disagree is an idiot or an evil person or just bound to a hell-bent to make life horrible for you? Or are you settled enough in God's acceptance of you and your identity that you can talk graciously even about people with whom you strongly disagree, even if those people are evil and deceitful, that you can still talk about them graciously and kindly? There's another way we know our identity is not settled in God, and that's this. How do you receive critical feedback? And see, it doesn't matter whether the feedback is given well or not or given poorly. If your identity is not settled, that feedback will cause you to feel embarrassment or personal attack or loss of influence or to be demeaned and you'll become defensive about your credentials and what you've done and what you know and how long you've lived and all those things will start to come up and you won't have the ability to be at peace in those moments of critique, will you? Because all of that will be raging inside of you. Your identity is still too much in the culture and what other people think of you in those cases. Now, certainly, I mean, all of us, normal people, when somebody critiques us, we're going to have feelings. We're going to have feelings of embarrassment. We're going to have feelings maybe even of anger and stuff. But when the source of our identity is not strongly anchored, those feelings will blow us all over the place and capsize us instead of allowing us to stay engaged and remain in those relationships in productive ways. God is the source of your identity and the source of your future, not culture. That's the starting point and the foundation of Daniel's story and what he's going to teach us. And if we put these lessons into, 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 into practice over the next few weeks, we're going to become like Daniel. We're going to become like Jesus, where in Luke 2.52 it says, Jesus grew in wisdom. He grew in understanding things and knowing how to live them out in a way that produced good things. And he grew in stature and he grew in favor with God and man. You see, God's intent for us is to live lives not conformed by culture, but rather we are to live as culture changers, to grow in favor with God and favor with man. And the story of Daniel is, is the story of teens who influence the world and grow old through tremendous change and yet remain faithful to God to be culture changers in an antagonistic setting. And the way Daniel and Jesus model that for us is so wise and is so empowered by God that it results in not just favor with God, but it results in each of us having favor with people around us, even those who are antagonistic to us. We must be different to make a difference. 
We must be different to make a difference. With the polarization that's going on in America, if we can learn to live as Daniel and Jesus did in this way, we are going to see God move in ways that are far beyond anything we've seen in the last 150 years in American history because the polarization of America creates a tremendous opportunity for us to live the gospel and be who God wants us to be in the culture. And we'll see God show up in amazing ways. We look a little bit later in Daniel 1 and verse 15 through 18, and we see Daniel and his friends' faithfulness to God and his identity for them resulting in the fact that they're healthier than the people around them. And that's what God wants. That's his intent. If we follow him, is to make us healthier. And it also says they were ten times more capable in the eyes of the king than everybody else. Not just a little bit more capable, but they had ten times more capability and God gave them influence as a result. You see, if God is the source of our identity and we will follow him in obedience, that's the kind of influence God wants us to have in our business place, in our families, in our neighborhood, in our community, around us. But it all comes back to the questions. Will I change the world or will the world change me? Will God be the source of my identity or will culture around me dictate my identity? And this is a perfect day for that question for all of us. Will you determine your identity by letting your desires define you? Or will you let the culture determine your identity and by what it wants to conform you to, what it wants you to believe, what it wants you to value, what it wants you to enjoy, what it wants you to pursue? Or will you let Jesus be the one who defines you? You see, the Bible talks about our identity as being found in God. We're created in his image. He wants to be in relationship with so much that he does everything possible on his part to be in relationship with us. And that gives us tremendous value. Even in all of our brokenness, if our, if our identity is settled in him, the only opinion that really matters is his love and his pursuit of us. Not others, not cultures, not the things we have done or the things we haven't done. Will God be the source of your identity or will culture around us create our identity? And it's an especially apt question for today because we're talking about baptism today and we're going to celebrate some baptisms. And baptisms is simply that declaration of declaring publicly that we're allowing God to be our identity. We're allowing Jesus to become our identity. It's kind of like the baptism is kind of like the wedding band. You know, this wedding band means that I belong to Wendy. And baptism is that. We're, we're saying we're going to belong to Jesus. We're going to rise. And because of his death, we no longer have to be subject to the power of culture defining us and the wrong things we've done defining us. And when we rise again with him, we get to identify with him and his power and his presence with us. We're no longer captive to culture's pressure to define us. Now, some of you here you're going to find yourself struggling with the story of Daniel today and over the next few weeks simply because you're riding the fence. You're kind of wanting to follow Jesus, but you're really living more conformed to the culture and you're letting the culture dictate your views and how you think about yourself and life more than God. And maybe, maybe you're that way because you've never understood from your past church experience how to relate to culture differently because all you've seen is antagonism. You haven't seen the winsomeness of being engaged relationally with the culture even when they disagree. 
Well, if that's the case, I want to encourage you to continue to come back because we're going to talk over the next few weeks about some really powerful lessons from Daniel that teach us how we are to live in relationship with people who are so antagonistic to us and different than us. But some of you are not following Jesus yet because you haven't even experienced that sense of love. You've been kind of religious and you've done some stuff or you've considered faith, but you know what? You haven't actually ever experienced the kind of love that can make you that kind of person to be that bridge between all sorts of different people to get to, that can make you so secure you don't have to be defensive anymore. And I want to invite you, if you're here, if you've walked away from your faith or if you're here and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, I want to invite you to make that decision today, to follow him, to start that trajectory of saying, I want you, God, to identify who I am. And some of you are maybe even feeling a sense of conviction now. A lot of times we get conviction mixed up with bad boy and and being shamed. But actually the conviction of the Holy Spirit is convincing you of what is right and good and best. And some of you are listening and saying, yeah, this way of living that I've just heard a little bit of a taste about, that's right, that's best. And that's what God God is convicting you and saying, I want you to follow me so you can live like that. So let's just pause in prayer. If you're here today and you're one who said, you know, I have uh, been on the fence and I haven't really been following Jesus fully. I've just been kind of letting culture define me mostly and kind of saying I'm a, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, but not really. And I want, to, I want to change that trajectory. I just want you to, as everybody's got their heads bowed and eyes closed, I want you to just slip, slip your hand up and say, that's me. I want, to, I want to make that decision today. Yeah, thank you. And some of you are here today and you're saying, I've never let Jesus define me. I've never even considered letting him define me. But I think this is right. And I really want to make the decision to get on that trajectory. If you just want to slip your hand up briefly as well. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. I'm not going to, not going to embarrass you. not going to make you get up and do anything. But, but I just want you to kind of, under your own breath, pray a prayer like this and say, God, I want you to be the leader of my life. I know that where you're calling me and what I'm hearing about who you are is right and good and just, and I want to follow you in that, and I'm not doing a really good job of it, so forgive me and come and be a part of my life. In Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray for all of us that you would give us a sense and interaction with your Spirit that would help us all allow you to be more of a rock and an anchor to our identity every day. That we can let you say who we are and we can shed even some of those things that we hold so dearly that people have said over us, good or bad, that are maybe not who you've called us to be, Lord, that we can even be free enough to let those things go so that we can walk into the full beauty that you created us to be because you created us very good and even though we're broken, your intent is to heal us and bring us back to that very good. Lord, we accept your spirit today and we rejoice in your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest's podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest. 
www.thepeoplesmovement.org.